Hey there, my name is Shane Craddock and this is the Inner Edge podcast where I share a different take on how to lead and live a sustainable high-performance life. Over the course of different episodes, I'm going to challenge the belief that tension, stress and struggle are essential to success and creativity. My experience is that there's an easier way, there's a better way and indeed there's an essential way that we need to explore for the times that we live in. So let's go ahead, let's jump in and explore. been moving like elephants. He used that metaphor, elephants, all of our life. But the the five biggest competitors we've got, he listed them up there on the stage, and they were all startups. They were young, uh, agile, nimble organizations. And he said, these, are, these guys operate like gazelles, and we're like elephants. If we don't understand how to operate entrepreneurially, like like these people, we're not going to be in the phone book in, in 10 years. So, so, so he said, we've got to learn the source of the entrepreneurial impulse, the source of the entrepreneurial impulse. And somebody on the front row stood up, one of these senior leaders, and said, well, Glenn, how, how do we do that? And, and, and he just looked at him and he just threw his notes down and said, I haven't got a clue. Hi there, and welcome to a very special episode of The Inner Edge here with me, Shane Craddock. Um, as you know, if you're a regular listening to this podcast, um, pretty much all the time, it's just me rattling on with stuff that hopefully might entertain or make an impact with you, the listener. Um, but um, I decided this year to do a couple of interviews with uh, people who I am very interested in, purely selfish for me but hopefully my selfishness will be of interest to you. Uh, today, um, I am very privileged to have interviewed or to share with you a recording of an interview I did a couple of weeks ago with a gentleman by the name of Joseph Jaworski. Now, if you know Joseph Jaworski, you don't need me to introduce, you can fast forward to the interview. Uh, <laughs> but if you haven't heard of him, um, I would hope that this interview would help you lean into um, exploring him more in his work and that of his uh, company General and International with his business partner, Susan Taylor. Um, Joseph has a fascinating story. Um, he, his father actually was the main prosecutor in the Watergate trial with Nixon, and Joseph followed his father into the legal profession. But then he had a kind of almost like a dark night of the soul uh, crisis situation himself and said, I'm, I'm actually not living an authentic life. To me, I am going to change. And that caused all sorts of uh, initially, probably stress and uncertainty for him, but he changed. And he then started to explore, I guess, his gut, now what he would call the quiet voice within. And he ended up uh, founding a company called Genron International, which over his career, Joseph is now 87. He's advised CEOs and senior executives in all sorts of companies, startups, Fortune 500, like some of the biggest companies in the world. Um, in 1980, he founded the American Leadership Forum, which is... Uh, a non-governmental organization focused on strengthening collaborative civic leadership in the U.S., and that's still going strong. He then, through a very interesting, quirky, synchronistic story, which he's going to share in the interview, um, ended up running the scenario planning department for one of the biggest companies in the world, uh, Shell, or the Royal Dutch Shell Company, and had a very significant impact on uh, their direction which is still playing out in terms of their change in direction towards renewables. Uh, and since then, 
um, it's just very hard to encompass everything to do with Joseph. It's so full of different stories. He's um, encountered then some very profound thinkers of, of the last 30 years, Brian Arthur, David Bohm. He had a massive influence with Peter Senge in terms of the learning organization, has um, spawned a new uh, field of development that is uh, getting a huge amount of attention resources within MIT in terms of uh, innovative concepts around leadership, creativity, and innovation. And it's just uh, this conversation for me it could be 10 times the length. Um, I do hope you stay with it because I've, I've broken it down into probably chunks of maybe 13 to 16 minutes max so that you've got a chance to digest uh, each of the sections. And I do a quick summary at the end, not, not too long, and then kind of give you a heads up as to what we talk about in the following section. Um, certainly, I would recommend that you check out, if you haven't heard of Joseph before, Joseph Jaworski, check out the book Synchronicity. It's probably the best place to start. And from there, there's other books, including Source. But Synchronicity, for me, personal favorite because of the way it's written. It's very honest. It's a story. It's his story. And also just explains some of the fascinating people that he connected with. And there are many, many people in that book who have contributed to uh, what you're going to hear. And Joseph's um, work has had a massive impact. You probably don't even realize it if you're a leader in particular about some of the thinking that's coming through now. Um, he was a pioneer in many ways around some of the new concepts. So the concept perhaps that are seen as new now, but actually had their origins maybe 20, 25 years ago uh, with some of the work that uh, uh, Joseph has done, but also with his partner, Susan Taylor, who you hear me referring to during the interview as well. Anyway, that's enough for me. Let's get into this conversation. Joseph Jaworski, you're very welcome to the Inner Edge podcast. It's good to be with you. I'm, I'm really, it's a privilege to be here with you, Shane. Thanks, Joseph. Again, I really appreciate you taking the time. So as I said to you just beforehand, we're going to start with an easy question, Joseph. So uh, what is leadership? Well, that's a softball question, but, you know, in reality, it's not such an easy question. But my, my uh, long-time uh, view of leadership is that it's all about the capacity to create new realities, uh, the capacity to create new realities. There's, there's all sorts of other aspects that are important but they're treated all the time, you know, have been for the last 20 years about the values uh, uh, inherent in good leadership and the uh, and, and, and not only values, but being a servant leader, for example, and, and serving others. But uh, at its essence, and particularly today, that's what I believe leadership is all about. It's about the capacity to create new realities. Okay, so there's um, a couple of things there. Um, as I often joke sometimes with people, we, we may not get past the first question, Joseph. There's so much that to, to ask about that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so let's, let's just take a slight angle on this. As I was telling you, this is the inner edge. So where does the inner side come into leadership from your perspective? Yes, well, the, the, the essential element is, is that the capacity to create new realities depends upon 
your inner condition. It depends upon your inner stillness. That's the first principle of the capacity to to create new realities is is to have the inner stillness to listen to that small voice that uh, that is that is going to direct you. Now, there's a whole hour we're going to talk about about what that means, but but that's that's a short answer. If you're talking to, I'm just curious now, like the inner stillness, and that you're making a distinction between that the inner voice that knows the emerging path versus the inner voice that maybe is is over analytical or questioning or critical. Um, but if you're yes. talking, so if you're talking to a leader today, in in today's busy, noisy technological world, where would you? Where would you suggest that they start to create more stillness? Or how do they do that in your mind? Well, um, so, so the, the, the short answer is that, that there's, a, there's a couple of things that I would do that I would recommend to create this inner stillness. And then we, we, should, we should go to the more practical aspect because this hypothetical person I'm talking to is a is a current leader and she or he uh, has got th- things to do and and so this is a very practical aspect uh, of leadership I'm talking about but but the how would be spending time in nature that to me that is the first principle for being able to access this kind of knowledge and um, that is something that I I learned early on and have been practicing in in organizations that I've founded and in our current organization Generon for for decades. So that's the first thing is is to go out in nature, and 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 the second thing is to have a sense of wonder. Don't don't be led by this sort of uh, institutional conformity that I think is sort of a disease today. Mm. And uh, and you 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 know the sense of wonder is where you're completely open to all new ideas. It's, I often say, you know, if I'm talking to a leader, take a walk with a three year old. <laughs> Take a walk with a three-year-old. Wow! Just with the take. So basically, you're saying take a walk with the with the child. Take a walk with the child's mindset. Yes, exactly. I mean, if if you if I walk with a three-year-old, that three-year-old has got a sense of wonder, and has got and, and sees everything with fresh eyes. And and if I'm walking down a path I've been on fifty times, that child is going to see things I've never seen before. Wow, I, I love that. Um, it's funny, as you're speaking, I'm realizing, you know, if I had three weeks to stay in a conversation with you, I, I probably would give the time. You probably wouldn't because you'd probably be bored with me. But uh, so no. <laughs> but the challenge we have is trying to squeeze out the max of what's the best. And I think p- part of my temptation here with you is 
to go into the past because you're so rich in stories. Um, and I think we will, we will do that. But even as you're speaking there, I'm also very aware of the richness of your current perspective. So, so that, that may be even more valuable. Um, but, <laughs> but, but let me, let me just go a little bit backwards. We'll see what comes out when you're talking about nature, mm-hmm. um, in that way. And, and I would subscribe to that too. Um, but I didn't always subscribe to that view. I'm just wondering, did you, were you always that tuned into the power of nature to give that impact in terms of inner stillness? Um, and obviously that's impacted in terms of what you do with the American leadership forum in, in, in the wilderness experience. But when, mm-hmm. like, did you always have that awareness of nature or did it, was there a specific point where you realized, oh, oh, I need to, I need to prioritize this myself? Shane, I, I was extremely lucky when I was 13 or so, 13 years old. Um, I was working on in, uh, during the summer uh, on our family ranch. And uh, one of the people that I, I, I worked for was a stonemason who was a very, very uh, intelligent uh, Buddha-like figure he, he even looked that way you know and um he was very quiet but uh, extremely proficient in what he did and uh he knew that as a as a young youngster i enjoyed hunting and he took me out in the woods and taught me the way that the american indians hunted okay um this this area that we that i'm living in right now and that i I lived in then was uh, occupied by the Cherokee Indians and their way of hunting for their food was uh, what, what Curlo, this, this man Curlo Morris taught me is, is still hunting, S-T-I-L-L, still hunting. Wow. And basically it's, it's walk one and listen to, take wow. one step. And pause and listen for two steps or more. Wow. Walk one and listen to. And I would do that for eight hours in a day or longer. And I was in, in the middle of, of, of the woods and by running creeks and, and things like that. And I became one with nature as a, as a youngster. Wow. And uh, that gave me the capacity to do things that, uh, that, that, I, that I look back on that, that were extraordinary experiences for me. Well, and Joseph, um, how long were you doing that for with Curlo? Was it for a few weeks Is it for a summer or what did you say? Oh, I, I did that for uh, four years with him. Wow. Wow, that's very... Um, yeah. That's very... Uh, What's the word impactful at that age to be doing something like that? Hugely impactful. It 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 followed me the rest of my life. If I did a mind map of my of my life and and, and the you know the sort of the, the most important elements, and I, I mapped them on a on a wall. I would start with that experience with Curlo uh, at the age of thirteen, because I look back and that enabled everything. Wow. And I love that. I mean, walk one, listen to, I mean, talk about a powerful metaphor for even for, 
leaders today? Oh, no question. This is this is critical for um, everything that uh, that we teach and that that I do in advising senior leaders. It, it's everything. It's at the essence of the U process, which maybe we'll talk about. Uh, it's it's critical to the application of the U process. It's critical to the application of, of Bohmian dialogue, which is a another principal process that, that is critical for leaders today. Well, well, okay. Let's let's take that as a cue. Let, let's let's talk a little bit about the U process, even at a top line level. Let me ask you a simple question. What is the U process? How did you discover it? And why is it important now in terms of leadership? Right. So what it is, I'll just give you the top line. The, the overall version of it. It's a, it's a process that is designed to enable discovery of new information. It's a process designed to, to resolve the toughest problems. So that's what it is, and 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 it. If if you had a piece of paper and you drew a, just a U, like a big U from the alphabet, on the left, the 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 cardinal, uh, the cardinal coordinates of it are uh, on the left side of the U is the words observe, 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 and so it's it's to really understand current reality. And at the bottom is go to that place of deeper knowing. And we could spend a long time on that. <laughs> and then on the right-hand side, it's act in an instant. <clears throat> act <clears throat> in an instant. Okay. So, so then you, you ask, well, well, how did I discover it? And um, the answer to that lies in the experience I had with... Uh, a key client of Generon's back in 1999. And um, this, this client, it, it was called the Alliance. And it, it, was, it, was the, it was the merger of Shell Oil Company, which is the North American subsidiary of, of what was then known as Royal Dutch Shell. So Shell, Saudi Aramco, the largest Oil company in the world and Texaco, another uh, Texas-based oil company, and they came together and created the largest downstream oil company in the entire world at the time, which is refining, uh, distribution, and sales. And so they they formed this alliance, and. Um, once the Federal Trade Commission gave them the green light, it took them a year to, you know, because it's such a big organization. And uh, the the CEO uh, recognized that he, he he was given a speech to um, to the uh, top two hundred and fifty people in, in this alliance, and he was he was exhorting them, you know. To move forward now that this thing was going to go was going to go live in a week, and and he was he was saying that that we are uh, products of big oil companies, and so we've been moving like elephants, 
he used that metaphor, elephants, all of our life. But the, the five biggest competitors we've got, he listed them up there on the stage, and they were all startups. They were young, uh, agile, nimble organizations. And he said, these, are, these guys operate like gazelles, and we're like elephants. If we don't understand how to operate entrepreneurially like, like these people, we're not going to be in the phone book in, in 10 years. So, so, so he said, we've got to learn the source of the entrepreneurial impulse, the source of the entrepreneurial impulse. And somebody on the front row stood up, one of these senior leaders, and said, well, Glenn, how, how do we do that? And, and, and he just looked at him, and he just threw his notes down. He said, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> I thought he was going to point so, at you. Yeah. So I was sitting in the back row. There were 250 people in this auditorium. I'm sitting on the back row, and I'm, I just shot up out of my chair. I didn't say it, but I, I wanted to yell, I know, you know, and, oh, wow. and because I had half the formula. And so um, anyway, the meeting concluded, and the next morning I went to see him. And, and I said, I've got the answer to this. I, I took the chief learning officer. I said, I need nine months to complete the work. And by some miracle, he gave me the nine months and a huge contract to, to go discover, quote, the source of the entrepreneurial impulse so I could teach it to, to, the, to the alliance. And that was the, the birth of that. That was the beginning of my, of my search for, for that, which resulted in the U process. Again, so much, so much in this. I just have to watch myself about which rabbit hole I go down with you, Joseph. Um, <laughs> I know, I know, it's my problem. What <laughs> was that? So was that? Was that moment? Was that before you went to work with Shell and their, their scenario planning department? Was that before that? That that was after Shane. So that's what's so interesting. Yeah, I was with Shell in in eighty nine. I was in London with Royal Dutch Shell at the headquarters as their scenario planner. That was in 89, 90, 91, 92, 93, 94. And uh, I had agreed to stay for those years and complete that, that round of scenario planning. And then I wanted to leave and go back to Houston. But Peter Sange came and when he found out I was leaving and asked me to come to Boston to help form the, the uh, MIT Organizational Learning Center. So I went from Shell to the Learning Center, helped Peter form that, and uh, Shell was a member of the, the that is the, the North American Shell, was a, was a member of the uh, consortium that we put together, which, which uh, gave the money to form the MIT Organizational Learning Center and they were our clients. And so that's how we ended up with that big, that, that big uh, transformation. I have to say, I was very taken with uh, Joseph's uh, story there of Curlo and the walk one, listen to approach in terms of uh, the still hunting, very, very powerful. Right, so in this next section, um, 
Joseph shares, um, I suppose, different elements to do with his life as he started to explore some of the source in terms of his own life as well and changing direction. We talk a little bit about his wife and her ability in many ways to have almost what you would call premonitions. Um, And then a very important meeting with the renowned physicist David Bohm, which had a very profound impact on Joseph's career and his life. Um, And then he also talks about his work with with Shell and where he ran the scenario planning department and the as he says it's one of the most important contributions of his life in terms of what happened there and the impact that it had on shell's direction so let's get back to the interview okay so there's a couple of things here that um when i when i was going back reading through uh, your book synchronicity which is well worn in my house um joseph it's 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 got notes all over it and dog ears and it's been i've been written all over for with ideas and inspirations but one of the things that stood out um just yesterday when i was flicking through was um the story with your about your wife mavis i think and it was to do with that time where you you were approached by shell perhaps on the scenario planning. And I, I want to lean in because I think this goes back to the source of that entrepreneurial impulse, in, impulse and the source in general, right? And so she, yes. you were concerned she was going to say no or because I know she was, I think she was in a medical res- residency at the time. And exactly. you, got a, you got a bit of a shock, I think, when you rang her. You, you can take the story up from there in terms of what happened when you rang her to see what she thought. Well, I mean, actually I rang her, but then I went home and talked to her about okay. it. And and she uh, she said, this this is part of your destiny. You've got to do it. And and uh, and 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 I uh, I was shocked because she was she was at Baylor Medical School in Houston. We were living in in Houston and and she uh, she was in her residency there and it was just. I thought it was impossible to leave. And she said, she said, it's part of your destiny. You've got to do it. And, uh, and then I remembered that uh, earlier, I don't know whether this is even in the book, I can't remember, but earlier we, we were uh, meeting with, um, with Warren Bennis, who, who is one of the great, uh, teachers of leadership in the world. He's passed away now, and 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 we were walking down the hall with him. And Mavis turned to me and said, um, "Within two years, you're going to be working for a major oil company." Uh-huh. And I, I turned to her and I said, "You know, this is ridiculous. You know, there's no way." And uh, I just totally forgot about it. Because it was so outrageous, until she she reminded me of it in that conversation. So she had, um, and I think she, I think in the, I think that is in the book, but it, you didn't mention Warren Bennis. I think you were mentioned walking down a hall, and I think in the book she, you also mentioned when you were in London working with Shell in the scenario planning um, department. That at some point she also said to you, "Oh, in a couple of years' time, we're going to be back living in Boston." So That's she, exactly right. So, so she seemed to have this almost like a premonition, intuitive ability about her 
which I think is interesting because I think isn't that kind of also coming from in your mind? Or would you see that coming from the saints, the same source as the entrepreneurial entrepreneurial impulse? How would you see that? Yes, yes, that that's exactly correct. Uh, so there there are people like Mavis and like my partner in in uh, Generon, Susan Taylor, who are more directly connected to source or the source or source. Uh, than than most people, they're, they're just they're just not blocking. Um, but j- just to explain to the podcast listeners that, that this source that that I'm talking about, and that I went back and taught the people in the alliance, uh, is called the the source or source because there are eleven different names for it. Uh, the scientists and best thinkers and the physicists in the world have all these different names for it. There's 11 or 12 names for it. It's called, you know, the implicate order, the zero point field, the field, the Tao, you know, just all, all of these names. And, and I was talking to the, to the, uh, uh, to the dean, dean of engineering at Princeton. And I was talking to him about this and he said, yes, Joseph, he said, he, he said, there, there's all these names for it. He said, I've, I've come to the conclusion that we should just call it the source. And that's the simplest way. So since then, uh, I always referred to it as the source or source. And, and so that's what Mavis had d- direct connection to. But most of us don't, including myself. I'm not as tuned in as, as, as she or Susan is. And so, so there are processes that I have to go through and that most leaders have to go through to be able to connect up. And that's what the youth process is all about. Uh, but okay. but just, 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 to, just to clarify this, what David Bohm taught me when I was getting ready to form the American Leadership Forum, I don't want to confuse the listeners, but you now this is in 1980 when I lived in London way before Shell and, you know, way before the U process. So way back in 1980, uh, I was a practicing trial lawyer and was living in London. And I had this dream to form the American Leadership Forum and I quit the law firm. And and by by this miracle, which is a great story, I, I was able to connect up with the most prominent physicist in the world in those days, David Bohm, who, who lived in, in London. And, and I found myself in front of him for most of a day asking him, how could I best uh, teach these people to connect up with this source of the entrepreneurial impulse? How could I, how could I help them do what Curlow taught me. How could I help them do what I what what I considered to be the second most important uh, event in my life was was when I was a student at, at, at Baylor when when I when I was able to help save twenty nine people in the wake of the largest tornado that ever hit Waco and. And and the six of us who were working were able to operate as a single intelligence. We were 
you know, we were we were operating like a, a flock of, of geese or birds, you know. Yeah. Operating together with, with extraordinary capacity. So so he David Bohm taught me about that. And he said there are three elements in the universe. He said it's not that well accepted now, but it will be, and, and of course it is now. But if you draw a triangle, there's there's Everybody at the time in 1980 said, yes, the universe is made up of energy and it's made up of matter, energy and matter. Those are the two base parts of the triangle. But he said the third part is information. That, that's, the, that's, the, that's the third key element in the universe, which is information. And, and what he was teaching me that day is how to tap into that information. And that's what Mavis and that's what Susan have the capacity to do. And that's what the U process gives uh, leaders and rising leaders individually and collectively the capacity to do is to tap into that to that information. I'm going to come back to David Bohm in a moment. But with, with regards to the U process, Joseph, which part of the U process do you think is the most challenging for leaders? Are they all equally challenging? Or do you think, is any one part of the main three of the U is, which part would you see being the most difficult? You know what I think is the most difficult, and this is sort of counterintuitive, uh, I think the most, most difficult part is on the left side of the U, which is where it's observe, 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 because our, our, they haven't taken a walk with that three-year-old. They're, they're they're clouded by all of the data and and institutional conformity that that keeps them from seeing clearly what the current reality is. If you can't see current reality, you're screwed. You might as well forget the rest of the you. Yeah. But, but if you are, or if you're able to do that, and then the, the, there's a little coordinate below that, which I didn't mention, but it's a letting go. It's it's just before the bottom of the year. It's it's letting go of all your previous uh, information and becoming that 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 three year old before you go to the bottom of you to listen to source. That, well, that that's very interesting because that that's my experience as well in a different context. But just I, I'll sometimes be asked, you know, what's what's the biggest problem that I have to try and help solve help leaders solve? And and I often say to people, the biggest problem that I can see is helping them to get in touch with reality. Because their mental the mental model is distorting it. So so let's link that back to to Shell and the scenario planning. So just to give a, some context, when you joined, like Shell, obviously massive organization, and I am going to link this back to the inner side. But they had already recognized at some level before you got there, because they had a, a renowned scenario planning team. They were it was recognized as being a key driver for their success. They'd already recognized that they needed to make sure that they checked the mental models in terms of where they aligned with the emerging reality. They'd almost kind of figured that out almost themselves without the language that we're talking about now. So you come in, and what I'm curious about with you is what did you add to that process for them? I'll leave it at that. I'm just kidding. Where did you make a difference? Where, where do you feel you made a difference? So um, 
That, that's a wonderful question, Shane, and it's one that is important in today's environment. Um, if, I, if I look back on my life, I think this is one of the most important contributions I've made to, uh, you know, to world affairs, actually. And, um, and it's, it, and, and the difference that we were able to make is that um, back when I arrived, these scenarios were so effectively being used to help that massive organization of 130,000 people then to react more quickly to the change in current reality okay. than all the other ma super majors and majors. They were able to react within a year or a year and a half to, to massive new, new, new realities. And it was much quicker than, than all the rest. Um, so for example, in the 72, 73 oil crisis, they were able to react much more quickly and they became the number one super major in the entire world as, as a result of that capacity. And they, they had this legendary uh, head of, of scenario planning who was my predecessor called Pierre, Pierre Wach. It's, it's W-A-C-K, it's pronounced Wach, Pierre Wach. Anyway, so, so, but that's what the, that's what the norm was, was to be able to react more quickly. And, and the insight I brought and, the, and the, the, the vision I had was that some, these legendary scenarios could be used to shape the future, not just react to it, but to shape a better future um, before that future emerged to actually sense in and discover what the emerging future could be and then paint scenarios about, about the, the, the tough future and, and, and the one that we, that we desire. And those were the two alternative scenarios. And I had a hell of a time because, because I was over, overcoming, you know, these years of, of great success uh, in using scenarios the other way to react. Yeah. It's a massive change. And, and it, you're, you're, so you're, you're, so you're, you're saying that you were able to change, help them adapt more quickly, but move from being a reactive, still, still a positively reactive organization, but more into now shaping. It's exactly correct. And this was a, this was a culture shift. Uh, I mean, th this, this was a massive culture shift first within this, this scenario team. You know, the people in, on that team were, were just such extraordinary people. I mean, uh, they, they included uh, 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 Dan Julius, for example, who was my chief economist. She ended up being uh, uh, one of the five members of the Bank of England after she left. I mean, that's the quality. The quality of people, and 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 another economist, you know, uh, that I had was was Vince Cable, who ended up being knighted by the Queen years later, and and was the head of the Liberal Democratic Party, and just 
sort of extraordinary person. So I had all these people, uh, and 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 they had been taught, you know, to do scenarios this way, and and I had to overcome that and shift. It took three years actually of hard work to, wow. to shift. You, know, you talked about mental models. That's exactly. You know what we're talking about is is recreating a mental model here. Yeah, very powerful. Um, I suppose and, and just to follow up, just to follow up on that, Shane. The, it so when I left, I think I said it was in 1994, 95. Um, I guess 94 when I left. Uh, about five years later. Uh, after I was gone, uh, the CEO of Shell, whose name was Jeroen Vanderveer, uh, directed the scenario team to create scenarios, which which are called normative scenarios. They're the ones that that I just described, which is to create a scenario for the world that we have to create to be successful. And it was called Blueprints. And it was all about the transition to renewable energy. And that was, you know, that was long before people were, were really focused on that. Okay. And, and that set of scenarios is the one that Shell has been following ever since. And it's directly as a result of the work we did. Okay. You know, so that, that we're that, describing that's the output that you're talking about that has shaped yes. that that area okay well that's very powerful yes that's legacy even as i've been listening back to the interview myself with uh joseph uh, it just strikes me that there's so many different roads I could have taken with this interview, but we just, I went with it the way that it went. So many of the questions though, obviously with a life rich um, and experience and such diverse and interesting experience. In this next section of the interview, uh, Joseph talks about concept of reacting versus shaping, whether you're a big company, a small company, or even a, a person. Uh, we talk about intuition. Uh, we talk about the source in action he shares, I suppose, a, maybe a surprising experience on his experience of the mindset of startup founders. Uh, he talks about how to get people unblocked. Um, and we even talk a little bit about um, energy in relation to locations. So uh, let's get back to it. Do you, yeah. do you think, Joseph, yeah. that, that what you were showing and what you showed within such a large organization, one of the biggest in the world, about this distinction between reacting versus shaping. Do you see that then also being applied back, A, to a small company, and B, to an individual? Can, can an individual shape the emerging future? What's your view on that? Uh, I have a very distinct view on that. The answer is clearly this applies at every scale. It applies to yes, this is very massive organizations like, like Shell, but it also applies to teams within an organization or, or, or a startup, a small startup, or an individual. This is the way you can live your life. 
I, I am firmly, uh, you know, uh, I firmly believe that, and that that's what our work is today, frankly, is helping established leaders and rising leaders to to realize that 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 they in their own life can can shape current reality and that their small organizations can do that. And you mentioned obviously um, your partner Susan Taylor. I hadn't I hadn't known that. I mean I know Susan I've obviously um, done a couple of programs with her. I hadn't I had felt her right her intuitiveness. I didn't realize the extent of it that you've highlighted there in terms of um, the source. So that's an extra information I'll have to use against her, Joseph. Um, but what I'm wondering yeah, is... You better. <laughs> what I'm wondering... I'll I, I just give you, before you ask the question, let me just prove the point by telling you this short story. Uh, so I, I was uh, delivering a program in Boston for about four days and she and I were doing it together with a couple of other people. It was over with, and, and it was. It, it, we ended at 10 o'clock at night, and I was living in Vermont, which was two and a half hours away in Stowe, Vermont. And so I said, you know, I'm not going to spend the night here. I'm going home. And uh, so I got in this, uh, in this car I had, and I was heading out, and I was driving up I-95, doing 95 or something nobody was on the road and and my damn engine blew up it just completely just completely blew up and you know I was, I was drifting off to the side of the road and it was it was like two in the morning or something and uh and there was not a soul out there and I was saying to myself a bitch what am I gonna do and all of a sudden my my cell phone rings and Susan said, Joseph, Joseph, are you okay? And, and I said, yeah, Susan, I'm okay. She said, well, as soon as you can come to a halt, she said, let's talk. I, I can help you. She, she had been dead asleep, and this woke her up. Wow. Wow. Well, that says a lot now, to be fair. And again, just, just yeah, to loop it, it back. But it, that, that says a lot. But to loop it back, you see that also as what the Dean of Engineering in Princeton said, that's the source. It's the same thing. Communication. It's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's, it's look, look, these, these Eureka moments that you have, you know, where you come up with a brand new idea or you can see something that is not yet manifest or that is getting ready to manifest. All of these are, are said to be, you know, clairvoyance and all, all these other words and everything really what it is is that you're accessing information what david bone taught me you're accessing information that lies in the implicate order and it's a it's an and this is where all of the information comes from and pe and what we're talking about is learning how to access it to resolve you know super hard problems just uh, again, I'm going to loop back to David Bowen in a moment, but I'm just curious. You mentioned, you know, with Susan, you were doing a four day program with a company there that that one with the engine blew up. Yeah. I'm just again for maybe the people listening. Could you give a sense of what kind of things were you doing on that four day program with this organization? What, what kind of what kind of were you taking them through the U process? Were you educating them on that? What were you doing? 
Yeah, exactly. So, so our clients have been all sorts of clients. Uh, this particular one was a large organization um, that you know was was of you know of the size you know like uh, fifteen thousand people or so. Uh, not not like Shell 130, but you know a mid-sized manufacturing company, and um, we were teaching them about the U process. Uh, so so we but we've done this with governments. Uh, so when, after 9/11, uh, the FBI found itself as a outfit that was, you know, arresting criminals and investigating criminals, they needed to become, they needed to flip and, and become a counterterrorism organization. And we went in and worked for three years with the FBI, teaching them the U process wow. to, 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 to go from a criminal investigation to, to counterterrorism. So that's an example. We also uh, have worked in civil society, you know, for organizations like uh, Synergos, where I mean that's not a household name, but uh, they they uh, uh, Synergos is led by David Rockefeller's daughter uh, Peggy Delaney, and they, they do huge projects in the world, and so we we could talk about that, but that's another example. Where, where we've done projects to help resolve the issue of child malnutrition in India. I mean, a huge societal issue. So that's, that's another type. But, but we, we've also worked with not only large organizations, but medium-sized and also startups. And what, what um, would you see a difference in the minds of people in startups versus larger organizations in terms of, is it the same sort of thing to work with? Or would you say any sort of difference in terms of even how they respond to the U process from your perspective? Well, this is interesting. It's a little bit counterintuitive. So people that, that are running a, a uh, are, are involved in a startup, you would think would be easier to dissuade from uh, from a, this fixed mindset that, that you find in most large organizations. The problem is most of, most of these startups are, are, are occupied by people from large organizations. They, they, yeah. They've quit these large organizations. They come together to, to do this startup. And it's a yeah. very innovative thing usually. But, but we still have this, this issue about getting them to let go of this conformity that they that, that has been built into them and it's the biggest block for the the success of a U process that you can imagine. Yeah. Okay, so that that's really interesting, Joseph. So so from your perspective, obviously there's what what's the single best way to to help unblock those mental models? Apart, well, apart, apart, from, using, apart from using TNT which sometimes is illegal. <laughs> really? <laughs> really? So, um, you know, so, so there's several ways to do it. 
One is on the left-hand side of the U where you're doing that observing, observing, observing. Uh, we we uh, expose them to people who have been hugely successful by uh, letting go of their old fixed mental models. Uh, you know, the, these could be established organizations. I mean, that have been clients of ours that are hugely success, successful or, or startups that have been hugely successful actually doing this. And, and, and these guys will listen to them. Um, we will also do learning journeys where we take them to these organizations and let them sh show them. I mean, you know, we'll spend a day or three days in an organization that have been infused with this new way of thinking and observing. And uh, so, so, so that's, that's a key way. And then another way is what we were originally talking about or earlier talking about um, is taking them out in nature. There's a way that, that now this is hard to get people to do, particularly in organizations, but we, we do six and seven day nature experiences for them. And at the heart of that nature experience is a, is a, uh, a four, four day and three nights solo where they're out in, in, in nature alone. And there's nobody within a mile on either side. And, and, and this, this creates a state experience, which is called a liminal experience. It's where they're, 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 they're operating liminally between their fixed mindset and what happens in nature when, when your mind opens up. And then when they come back, we, we, the rest of the workshop is used to help them create uh, a solution to the big issue that, that, that they're facing. And, and that's the work we do at the bottom of the U. But, but this nature experience is at the heart of that. Wow. So, so for, for, you said, what was it four days or four days, three nights? They're literally by themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Four days and three nights. This is a, uh, so, so we did a lot of experience, uh, a lot of experiments on this. And, and that's sort of the seat, sweet spot. I mean, you can do it in, in four hours, you know, uh, if you have to. Sure. But it's not nearly as effective. What the sweet spot is is four days and three nights. And I'm presuming they don't have Netflix with them, Joseph. <laughs> so here's the deal: they 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 don't have a wristwatch. They don't have their oh, wow. cell phones. They don't have anything. They have nothing except uh, the food and water that they need. And we set up a tent for them. And usually. Uh, you know, there's three levels. We do one for beginners, one for intermediates, and one one for uh, more advanced people who have been out in nature, you know, a long time. And and uh, yeah, and and they're out there. Uh, some some people are highly uncomfortable about it, and so we we put them closer to the base camp. Susan mans the base camp, okay. and um, and I'm usually at the uh, more advanced level up at the top, 
and 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 she has ways of helping them. Now, now we do have communication. We have, for safety reasons, many of these places have bear and mountain lion, and sure. and so uh, there, there there's ways you you have to communicate, uh, and so and so so we have these these wireless. Uh, uh, telephones that are connected to base camp and connected to to the guides, but uh, you know, nobody can use them unless it's a real emergency. Wow, I'm kind of getting visions of me coming out of my tent trying to get out of it, and Ju- and Susan is there with her shotgun saying, "No, no, buddy, <laughs> back, back into your tent," I, and I wouldn't be able to say no to that. <laughs> no. She, she's so good, though, because because we we've taken, you know, um, so, so we, we did this for eight years with a group called the Global Philanthropy Circle. This okay. was a hundred philanthropists who were um, best friends with David Rockefeller and they were from all over the world. But Peggy, the, his his daughter said they're not they're not really doing anything for the environment they're they're just doing sort of things that that they're comfortable doing and and how can we change this and i was in a meeting with her in at dinner in delhi uh in new delhi and and i just looked at her and said take them out in nature and and she just instantly got it and and she has a ranch in montana and we would take these billionaires uh 20 at a time on these on these nature solos that I was just describing. It's a life-changing experience for all of them. Well, I, I would imagine it is because just well, even just being by yourself in nature, I hadn't realized you take off. I mean, I I'd expected no technology. I didn't realize you even took the wristwatch off because that that is quite significant too. So they, they lose a sense of yes. psychological time. Um and oh, course, totally. And of course, then you're there in that vibration of nature, which going back to what we started with is you're going back into Curlow's territory and that inner stillness. Exactly. Which allows- That's exactly what happens. This, this is basically recreating what I used to experience as a 13-year-old. Um, wow. And secondly, we... we, we we try to do this. I would say almost every time we we have established these uh, the base camp and these and these these higher elevation places where 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 they are situated near sacred spots, like the one in Montana is right next to an American Indian burial ground. They always buried their people on one of these sacred spots or a, a, a sort of a which which I call a vortex spot and they're all over they're all over the world if you can identify them. Mm. And 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 when people are on solo near one of these spots, the liminal experience is even more profound. Okay, so I hope you've enjoyed the interview so far in this um, last section. Um, Joseph starts to talk about um, the language that changes his life. Actually, it was a language or a quote that you'll hear me read out from the renowned economist Brian Arthur. 
and that was the kind of the I suppose maybe the the origin of what became the U process, which MIT took then and developed as well into Theory U. Um, so he talks about that. He talks about I suppose the way that he came across Brian Arthur, which was synchronicity in action, and also talks about the faint voice within everybody, that voice of intuition, which I guess in Joseph's language is is connected to source. Um, and then he also talks about the capacity of a leader in terms of what that means and how to enhance it, develop it so much uh, in this particular section. So uh, again, I hope you enjoy it. I want to bring in Ryan Arthur and David Bohm and I think um, Robert Greenleaf. Okay, so yeah. with regards to Brian Arthur, yeah. I'm, just going to, I'm going to read out this quote here that I took from your book, Synchronicity. And I just want to see what, what this means to you now, what comes up for you with this. So he says, for the big decisions in life, you need to reach a deeper region of consciousness. Making decisions then becomes not so much about deciding as about letting an inner wisdom emerge. So what does that mean to you now, Joseph, or what do you hear now? So that's key language. That that language literally changed my life. And I'm going to tell you how I first read that language. But look, that's that's at the bottom of the U. He's describing what happens at the bottom of the U. Mm. He's describing exactly what we've been talking about this whole this whole conversation mm. is about how Mavis uh, accessed this information or how Susan access this information and and how uh, we had these successful projects where uh, whole teams have been able to access it. And that in that that uh, sentence or that paragraph uh, was was what what drew me to Brian Arthur. I don't know whether this part of it's not not in synchronicity. I don't. I can't remember what's in what. But uh, uh, I, I was after I left the CEO's office when he said, "Go find me the source of the entrepreneurial impulse." I I went to my office and I called Otto Sharmer, who was working for us, and I got him to agree to, to go on this journey with me because I knew I needed a social scientist. I needed somebody you know who had capacities in addition to those that I had. Sure. And uh, we had agreed that, that, that I would use my Rolodex because I had a lot of contacts. And I worked with Susan for hours one night, and we came up with a list of the first 30. And um, uh, it was at 10.30 at night, and I was just dead tired. And I was running out the, the door, and I was halfway out the door, and I looked to the left, and there was this magazine. Who, who knows why I picked up a magazine, not having eaten for, you know, eight or 10 hours or something, and, and was exhausted. I picked it up, I opened it to this passage that you just read. Oh, wow. Okay. And, uh, and, and of course, 
and and it was a little sad bore interview and it was and it was an interview by someone in 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 the magazine fast company interviewing brian arthur the noted economist saying you know for the big decisions in life what do you do and that's what he was saying uh, that that paragraph and when i read that i said son of a gun and I just ran back in, picked up the phone, <laughs> called Susan. I said, find this guy, Brian Arthur. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and so we're driving, uh, Otto and I are driving down Highway 101 after having met with this guy, this other guy. And she, she calls me on the cell phone, says, I found him, I found him. I said, I pulled over. And I said, I said, well, well, she said, that's the good news. She, I said, well, what's the bad news? She said, he won't talk to you. And I said, what, what do you mean? And she said, well, he's writing a book and he doesn't want to talk to you. I said, give me his assistance number. So I got the assistance number and I finally talked to her and to let me talk to Dr. Arthur. And, and Brian Arthur said, uh, said, Mr. Jaworski, I'm sorry, uh, I, I'd love to meet you, but I'm not interested. And I was trying to convince him. And he said, look, um, I've got to go. But I said, he said, let, let me just put it this way. If you insist on seeing me, I'll see you today at two o'clock and it'll cost you $10,000. <laughs> I put I put my hand over the telephone. I turned to Otto, who's who's riding shotgun. I said, Otto, this guy wants ten thousand dollars for two hours. <laughs> and Otto says, Tell him to fuck off. <laughs> oh, he just he just put his arm up like that, and I'm sitting there with my hand on the receiver, and I looked at him, and I. I put the receiver to my ear and and I said, we'll be there at two. Oh, very good. I have no clue why I did that, except that it was sore speaking through me. Because there's I mean, I can go through the whole issue of, of, of what happens when sort when you're tapped into source, but you it's not a rational thing. It just your body responds to it. Yeah, so it just goes people, from so your people gut. listening. You were pointing to your head there, and then you were pointing to your body, to your to almost to your stomach, heart area. Um, but to sorry, so just again, just area. just in terms of um, again, I, I don't like cutting you off from going into the stories, but again, just watching the time, and I I, I want to get a couple of I want to squeeze the max out of the time with you, Joseph. Uh, just to to okay. jump into that, I know that that you met him. He gave you a lot of time, didn't he? Because he because he realized something that that he, he confused what you were looking for. I think wasn't that what it was? So so that that's correct. He he he. So we, we set up the microphone, and he said, "Okay, Mr. Jaworski, what can I tell you about the theory of increasing returns?" That's his famous economic yeah. theory. And I said, "No, Doctor Arthur, that's not what we're here for. We're here for this." And I pulled out that sentence you just read. And I read that to him and he just, his mouth just, he was jaw dropping. He said, so that's what you're here for. Okay. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, well, he thought for a minute, he said, well, do you have six hours instead of two? 
And you can I said, away, yes, sir. And you can put away your checkbook. You don't need it. Well, no, <laughs> I still paid in the 10 grand. <laughs> Very good. But wasn't it afterwards, wasn't it from that conversation that that was the, my memory of, I think, synchronicity, or maybe talking to you before was that afterwards with Otto, I think in the car, or maybe in the car park, you started to draw the U. Was that the start of that? That was the start of that. It, when, when we sat in the car, I turned to Otto and I said, Otto, this is the answer. We, we, we just got the answer. And, and, and he said, yes. And he said, he pulled out a legal pad and he said, we can chart it around the U. And, and, and we put those coordinates that, that Brian gave us. And he, he gave us those three coordinates that I mentioned at the outset of our conversation. And we drew them on, on, on that U. Yeah, powerful stuff. So, so let me give you another quote. So you mentioned a couple of times David Bohm. I know he had a profound impact on you. Um, short and all was the time that you probably spent with them, but yet a fascinating individual, obviously a top, a top mind. But in the introduction of synchronicity, I think it was Peter Senge refers to him. Um, and he says, he puts in the quote that I think is phenomenal. I just want to see where you're at with this quote now. He said, thought creates the world and then says, I didn't do it. So how do you hear that now, Joseph? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a famous, that's a famous quote from him. Look, um, this is him saying what we've been talking about is that, is that when, when you're after the most significant, the resolution of the most significant problem that's facing you, whether it's, do I get married or, or, or do I fire this person or uh, something more profound than that, like resolving the issue of child malnutrition. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the idea is, is that this comes from here that, but, but really what happens, it comes from where we were pointing before, mm -hmm. your gut, your heart, and then it comes from here. It, 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 it enters your, your brain. And, uh, and this, this particular information that comes from the implicate order literally creates these new realities. And yet people don't understand where it comes from, and they deny that 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 this many times it's such a faint voice that they just dismiss it. And so and so what he was saying is is, is that th this creates entire new realities, but and creates the world, but then they just dismiss it. And so I think, again, to quote you this time, I think it said, you know, um, the capacity as a leader comes from your choice to allow life to unfold through me. Now to, that, that to me, that's probably, for me personally, that's probably the ultimate, is to allow life to unfold through me. I'm a vehicle for the expression of life. But in that context, you mean the source, which is what we've been talking about. You mean the implicate order. It's, it's allowed yes. that. And so going right back to where we started, that, 
that loops back to the importance of why inner stillness is so important. So you get that sensitivity to be able to hear that quiet voice. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's what I'm saying. And when you, when that quiet voice, when you listen to it and you act upon it, this comes through you. It's almost as if it's not by you, it's through you. This goes to what you were just saying. It's, it's, um, it's as if um, you're acting without a sense of me doing it. So you move beyond your ego. Yes, completely beyond your ego, beyond your 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 normal self, and you you become a vehicle for for source. Imagine what it would be like if we, if the entire planet of leaders were working in that way. That's a pretty powerful vision. So, so that's a beautiful statement. That that's really true. And you see, Shane, this is what can happen when a team of people, you know, eight people or twenty people, uh, are operating to resolve one of the world's toughest problems or whatever the problem is, and they operate together. In, in the fashion that we're talking about as a single intelligence, as a single intelligence. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the most powerful way. I can, I can even feel my own, um, the back of my neck rippling uh, with that comment uh, in terms of just the power and the potential within that. So it's probably, it's probably the perfect place to probably end this conversation Having said that, it probably opens up other questions, but I'm going to have to shut those down for the moment, right? Um, okay. All, all I can say is thank you so much for giving the time, but also giving your energy. And it's lucky for you and it's lucky for me and it's lucky for everybody that Curlo took the time to uh, to spend time with you in nature and do that one step forwards, two steps listen. One step walk, two step listen. Um, yes, I love that. Walk one, listen to with actually what you actually said. Walk one, listen to. Um, so thanks exactly. Much. Thank you very much. You're you're more than welcome, Shana. It was a real real privilege to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. I really hope you enjoyed um, listening to that conversation with Joseph as much as I enjoyed participating in it. Honestly, I. I think I could have recorded 10 times as much um, content with Joseph, um, but I think he would have uh, got bored with me. Um, <laughs> it's so much in it. I think I'll go back to the very start of the conversation that I took out of it. I suppose the key thing was, which was unexpected. I didn't know a story about his, um, his friend at the Hunter Friend, Walk One, Listen To from Curlo, and that power of nature. And also I particularly loved the you know, take the, the mindset of a three-year-old. So much in it. I can't recommend um, Joseph's book, Synchronicity, highly enough, or indeed Source, which came afterwards. But if you're new to Joseph's work and that of Genron International, and a big shout out as well to uh, Joseph's business partner, Susan, who's mentioned all the way throughout his books, um, who I've got to know over the last while, beautiful person, very capable herself. And maybe at some point we'll have uh, Susan on to give her side of things. 
um, at some point in the future. If you have listened this far to this recording, I kind of believe you deserve a treat, a little Prezi from Shane, right? So the treat is that there was one little section of um, the overall interview, which I didn't include in this main part, but I am going to include it uh, just after the end credits or the end music here in my podcast. And the reason I didn't include it was because for most people, I'm thinking they may not be interested or may not even get it. Uh, but I found it quite interesting. And Joseph was very uh, uh, generous to talk about, to share a story that involved himself and Susan. And it was to do with around what we talked about in terms of Glendalock being an energy vortex or a hotspot or a thin place. And he tells a story. Um, well, do you know what? I won't even... I won't even tell you what it's about, but it's, it's it was involved uh, location in Europe, which I think is interesting. So if you've listened this far, this is the little reward you get. Most people won't hear this, but right after the end credits here, uh, there is a recording there, maybe nine, 10 minutes of myself and Joseph chatting about a story that's connected to a place called Lockmore in uh, Scotland. So uh, enjoy that. And that's all for now. Bye-bye. Well, I think I was sharing with you before the, we went live that I must check out and see what the Vortex people say about Glendalough close to where I live, because certainly when I go there, I, I, I feel a sense very strongly of what you're talking about. To me, I just get a real sense of connection, of clarity. Um, it's almost like the inner wisdom is, um, I think there's a word actually that I heard from a poet in Ireland before about, it's called a thin place. Have you ever heard that expression, Joseph? The thin place. No, say say more. Yeah, uh, say I, more. I I heard it from an Irish poet a few months ago. They said, uh, "I'll check it out afterwards." But they just said that there's certain places on the planet that that are known as thin places, and it's where the distance between the seen world and the unseen world is very thin. And at these places is where the maximum energy comes through. So that sounds a little bit similar. So it's exactly how do you how do you spell that? Uh, well, you have to get rid of my Irish accent first. So um, you have to say it's thin t h i n place p l a c e. So now now I understand. Okay, thin thin place. Okay, now I get it. I had never heard that, but that's very descriptive of of these places. Look, I don't know whether we have time, but I should tell you the story about Northern Ireland. Go on and and these. And, and and these these thin places. So I, I helped form something in in Europe called the Foundation for Natural Leadership. Um, it's 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 based upon the experience that that we that we had for all these years, over forty years with the American Leadership Forum, taking. Uh, rising leaders out in nature as a, as a way to help help, help them uh, gain access to this to this knowledge, this new knowledge. So um, the foundation for natural leadership was formed. There's a whole great story around that, but 
it, it was formed to to replicate that that uh, that experience, and it's headquartered in in Amsterdam. Okay. And so one of the guys, one of the guys that um, that there was a there was one of the leaders there called me one day. His name was Mark Tickler, and, and Mark is a former McKinsey uh, partner. Mark called me and said, "Look, uh, you you've told us about these." these hot spots, these vortexes, and and you, you've explained that this is the place, you know, that we need to take these leaders to. And uh, he said, how do we find these places? And I said, there's a professor at Leiden University who specializes in, uh, you know, in determining where these are. So he goes and he hires this guy and uh, and and then he comes back about uh, two months later, and he says, "He said, okay, Joseph, we've we've located these spots, uh, and and I and and I I can identify literally on the map where they are, but there's one that we can't, and 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 it's in and it's in in north in in Scotland, right. uh, and, uh, and and we we and and we can't find it." Uh, it, it's called Lockmore, and and uh, and he said, I remember you telling me that you have a friend that lives in Northern Ireland who who has a lot of land in Scotland. C- could you could you help us uh, determine where this place is? And I said, sure. So I hung up and I and I emailed my friend uh, who. Uh, whose name is Sasha Abercorn, I, I, I said, Sasha, blah, 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 can you help us locate this? It's, it's somewhere in Scotland, and I know you have a big estate there. So I went to bed, and the next morning, I had a reply, and it said, it just said, call me. I mean, just like, <laughs> call me. You know? So I did that. I called her, and I said, Sasha, so what, what, have you found anything about Lockmore where nobody can find it? And she said, we own it. Oh my gosh. Classic. And did you, did you end up hosting an event there? Well, it's a long story, but so I, I said, you got to be kidding me. And she said, no, she said, my family owns it. Uh, her, her sister is married to, uh, to, to Lord Grosvenor, the, the head of the Grosvenor estate. Uh, in London, which you may know about, okay, yeah. and they own you know 400 acres of downtown London, but but they own this estate which was uh, 150, 100,000 or 150,000 acres, and, um, and 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 I said, look, uh, Susan Taylor and I need to come and 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 make sure this is real. And she said, she said, well, uh, I'm going to set up a, a breakfast between you and Lord Grosvenor and see if you can uh, <laughs> get him and my sister Tally to to buy into this vision, this dream of, of, of bringing senior leaders out there. Yeah. And so I, she set me up in June. I remember going there and having this big breakfast with uh, Gerald Grosvenor. And uh, and and Tally Grosvenor, her her sister, and I spent about 
three hours. And they had the CEO of the Grosvenor estate there at the breakfast. Wow. And so I'm having breakfast with them, and I convinced them to, to, to let us explore doing this. And they set up a big excursion for Susan and me and the CEO and Sasha and Tally to, to, to go out and, 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 and look at this place and do a reconnaissance. And uh, cut a long story short, we, 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 we were in Inverness and uh, we all met there and we were supposed to take a helicopter and, and all the, uh, the weather was so bad we had to drive. And so we're, we're driving from Inverness, you know, o- over to this place in, in, in Western Scotland and uh, their, their estate. And... Um, Oh, I had forgotten also uh, James, her, her, Sasha's husband, was there. He was driving the car. And, and so um, James, as we're getting closer to, uh, to the property, he, he said, now this is the place you're, that you're talking about. And he, he pointed to this gorgeous lake. It's called Lockmore. Yeah. And and Susan and I were in the back seat, and she she looks at me. She says, "That's not it." Wow! And I said, "I, I said, uh oh." And so anyway, the first day they took us out a lot more. And Susan said, "I can feel the energy. This is not what we're talking about." Wow! So, so she went to the guy, the Gilly, who who was head of the whole place. And uh, and ask him, he'd been there for years. She, she said, uh, James, what is your favorite place on this whole hundred thousand acres? You know, what what, what place do you go to? Yeah, what, what's your favorite place? And he said, Well, uh, I'll take you there in the morning. So we all pile in these big vehicles that have 16 wheels on them because it's boggy and everything. And we we end up at this place that, that that he identified for Susan, and it was it. She could feel it was it, energy there. It was this. Oh, you could feel it, Shane. Yeah. The minute we entered that field, it was just like it blew you away. Wow. It was almost. It, and I'm going to tell you that we we spent six hours there or something, and. It was such a powerful experience that the CEO of the Grosvenor Estate was weeping. Oh, so so the CEO had never been there themselves? Never. Oh, wow. Okay. So they were impacted by the literal presence of that spot, that location. Yeah, of that thin place. So look, um, this was way out in the middle of nowhere. It took several hours on one of these vehicles to get there. He had never been there. And nobody, none of them had ever been there. 